we'll be reading Mary's song from Luke 1. The verses are found in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You may be seated. Pray with me as we come to God's word. Merciful God, we thank you that you have sent your prophets, your messengers, to prepare the way for our salvation. I pray today we will hear their warnings, and that you will grant us repentance. I pray we will hear their promises and find hope and comfort. Grant us the grace to hear today their message, so we may rejoice in our hearts with Mary at the birth of her Savior and Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I only have one question for you today. Does your soul magnify the Lord? That's the question. Because your soul does magnify something. Now, kids, you guys know what a magnifying glass does, right? I almost brought one up here, um, but I'm not quite ready for props. Um, A magnifying glass, when you hold it up to something, makes it look bigger, right? It makes it easier to see. So you might do it with a bug that's cool or something strange you find in your house. To magnify something is to make it look bigger. So, what does your life make look big? What do you celebrate? If someone were to watch you this week, how you live, or what you talk about, what would they think is most important of all? What is your life like a magnifying glass to? Is it family? Is it politics? Is it a certain diet? Is it money? Work? Around this time of year, is it Christmas presents? Sports? Some other hobby? Or does your soul magnify God? It's actually amazing to think God invites and enables small little people like us, sinners like us, to magnify his glory. And this is what Mary does today as she reflects on God's redemption through song. The traditional name for this song, as you might know, is the Magnificat. The traditional title comes from the Latin of the first word of the text, magnifying Latin. And this song for us serves as a holy and inspired commemoration of praise and of the redemption God would work through Jesus. This is the first Christmas carol. It's a song sung to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And for that reason, even further back than let all all mortal flesh keep silent, this song has been used and treasured by Christians in their worship. So, can you sing this song? Can your heart sing this song? Or does your heart magnify something else? Today, we will see Mary magnify God in song in two ways. First, 
by rejoicing in God as her Savior, and two, by showing him holy fear. Her song will give us two reasons to glorify God. First, we can see God is at work in history. And two, God is fulfilling all of his promises in Jesus Christ our Lord. So first, let's examine the joy Mary has in this song. Mary magnifies God. Interestingly, this song is only found in Luke's gospel. Now Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, says the source of all the details comes from careful research and interviews he did with the eyewitnesses. And so Luke may have heard, first heard this song sang by Mary herself. Now we know Matthew's gospel contains a lot of the Christmas story as well, but Luke's has many songs that make it unique. Mary, Zechariah, the angels, Simeon, they all sing. So what's the significance of all the singing at the beginning of Luke's gospel? The answer involves considering where are the places in the Bible we find people singing? Well, if you read the Bible, start in, in Genesis, the first place you'll find people singing are the songs of Mary, Miriam, and Moses after the Red Sea was parted. Maybe you know the song, right? Horse and rider, God is thrown into the sea. Now, we don't have to turn too many pages before Deborah is singing over God's victory, over the Canaanite army. And Hannah, a barren woman now pregnant, sings when the kingship of Israel is being established. So what does this pattern teach us? God marks great acts of salvation through song. Luke wants the reader to know what I am writing about is worth a new song. God, in Jesus' birth, is doing something supreme. He is working a saving work on par with the exodus in the birth of this child. So when the scriptures command us to sing a new song, we often think, well, that means sing contemporary music too, not just old music, as an expression of fresh praise to God. Writing songs of worship can be a wonderful way to praise God. But that isn't really what the Bible has in mind when it says sing a new song. It's calling for us to find ways to commemorate God's works of salvation. You can see this if you read the Psalms closely. For example, Psalm 98, 1 and 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. You can see this in the book of Revelation, where they say we're singing a new song, and they're quoting the Psalms. We're called to sing because God is doing something marvelous with his strong arm. New songs are the kinds of songs we sing when God saves us. And the Psalm looks forward to a time when all the nations can sing these songs, because God is working that kind of a salvation. Luke is telling us this birth is that kind of time. It's a new song time. It's a salvation that will be worked in the sight of all peoples. Because we sing. We learn God's saved people are a singing people. And we sing because we know God is doing something great. And this is how Mary begins to magnify the Lord. I very much like this word magnify, this English translated word. Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. Again, we can ask, what does your soul magnify? Jesus uses this word when he said, the Pharisees magnified the fringes on their garments. 
they magnified, they drew attention to their religious dress. They were making much of their own goodness, their own spirituality, their own worthiness. Instead, Mary, a humble person, magnifies God. Because again, Mary cannot add to God's glory, can she? God is altogether glorious. God's glory is perfect. It cannot be added to by you by anything. But you can magnify it. Just like a magnifying glass, you can make it look bigger. You can bring it into visibility for others. And so Mary sings to magnify the Lord. Perhaps this obvious detail shouldn't be overlooked. She uses her voice to magnify God. So should you. How do you sing? Do you sing? Do you sing loud? Mary did. Rejoice. Sing. Because it magnifies God. And I will say this. People in Presbyterian churches don't get a pass on that either, just so you know. Her praise, though, is in the most profound sense heartfelt, right? Praise that honors God, of course, is not something that's external. The praise of believers and hypocrites can't often be outwardly distinguished. Her mouth overflows with praise because that is what has been put in her heart. And so if we lack this kind of praise for God, it's because we lack the joy of salvation. And again, we of all Americans should know, we could have many material blessings and have no joy. This joy comes from God and his salvation. Because despite our affluence, we still are full of anxiety. And we will not have this kind of joy until we are assured God will be our Savior. This is what Christ has come to do and why he left us his word, his testimony that we may know God is mighty and that he is doing great things for me and holy is his name. So Mary does not have anxiety because she has a great God and she knows the strength of his arm because neither you nor Mary have a God with a weak arm. Mary, of course, knows she has a special role in history. She lived in a special time. She says, for he has looked on me at the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And we should. Now you may know this declaration by Mary is taken by many Roman Catholics to prove that we should honor Mary or venerate Mary, especially in our prayers. Now, I must tell you, Luke nor Mary had anything like that in mind. In fact, rather than endorse such a belief, I think our text would actually have us rejected as superstition. God is looking down on her humble estate. That's what she says. God is not noticing this virtuous woman's humility from heaven. The word humble here is being used in a very different way. The word is being used to communicate her lowly, her insignificant condition. It's the way we use the word humble when we say they had humble beginnings. God saw Mary not because she was worthy, because she was able, or holy, but because she knew she had nothing outwardly to commend herself. The great blessing of Mary, quite obviously, is not something she could have ever done. The fact that it is a virgin pregnancy should show us it is not the accomplishment of any human will. And this is what Mary says in her song. Why will everyone call her blessed? Is it because she's especially holy? Is it because she's the mother of grace? No, it's because he who is mighty has done 
great things for me. Mary is called blessed because of what God has done for her. God is doing great things for the humble of the world, and it should be a cause for our joy. Because God still saves the lowly today. Real sinners, people with real problems, and have real shame, can turn and magnify God. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God calls the lowly so he can display his power. This is why the blessing of Mary is such good news for us, because it means God is willing to work and save those who have no, nothing to commend themselves. So now, God is not only magnified by his singing people, but by their holy fear of him. Mary magnifies God by her holy fear. Verse 50 says, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. For our souls to sing this song with Mary, we must have a holy fear of God. There is very little fear of God today. When Paul describes the sinfulness of the world in Romans 1, he summarizes his point by saying, There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I think even in our churches, we're pretty confused about what it means to fear God. So what is the fear of God? A lot of times to make people feel comfortable, we reduce it to it means we re should respect God. Right? We should honor him. And I think this is a symptom of how little fear of God there is. The reason the, the scriptures uses the word fear should cause us to be slow to remove what we consider negative aspects. We'll return to this when we come back to Mark 4. Now, this is not to say that the fear of the Lord is a negative thing. It's a bad thing. It's not like the sinful fear of Adam and Eve when they hid from God after they sinned. Mary's not afraid because of sin. The fear she's having is not one that's driving her away from God's presence, is it? But it's a response to being in God's presence. This kind of fear is not the flip side of joy, right? Jeremiah the prophet in his 33rd chapter says, we shall fear and tremble because of the good God is doing. So it can be a delight to fear in the Lord. But we should fear him because God is a consuming fire. God is consuming. He should consume the thoughts of those who fear him. True knowledge of the great I am should stop you in your tracks, should make you think again. This fear is less like being scared of the dark and probably more like if you've been married, the fear a groom experiences as he watches the bride walk down the aisle to him. We shouldn't be so comfortable with God. I remember when we lived overseas, there was this zoo this amazing zoo. Zoos in other countries, you can get so close to the animal, you can do things that are completely forbidden in this country. And they had this exhibit of a Bengal tiger. And you could walk up to it. You could get within a foot of this tiger. They had reinforced plexiglass. And the tiger would just pace in front of this window all day long. It was amazing to see this animal this close. Its paw was the size of my head. 
And when our kids would walk up to this animal, they would be, they would be drawn to it, but a lot of times they would cry. They knew they weren't supposed to be this close to an animal like this. They knew in their bones, they just felt, we don't mess with these things. They knew there was no really safe way to come this close to a tiger, which is probably why you can't in America. But they also knew this was an awesome thing we were beholding. When God works, his people have this kind of fear. Mary is a virgin and she's pregnant. She knows something completely beyond her understanding is happening. She is a young woman, she is pregnant, and she is subject to a power that completely surpasses understanding. And the only response is to bow. Later, people in Luke 1 will hear of this and they too will fear. There is one more quality of this fear to take note of. It's something from the Proverbs. It says it over and over. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because only a fool would oppose God. Just like only a fool would walk up to a tiger like that. The fear of God should put you in your place. I am small, he is big. And I have to live all of my life and make all of my decisions before his face. So I need to know what he commanded. This is the kind of fear that can dispel all other fears. John Calvin, the Reformed theologian, described Mary's fear this way. The fear Mary speaks of is the fear that will keep covenant with God. This means once we've placed our full trust in him, we will call on him for every need. We are patient when he chooses to chastise us, and we will deal uprightly with our neighbor. At the same time, we know we will continually invoke him in prayer and always praise him when he blesses us. When we have this kind of fear, we get an added blessing. We are sure God will be faithful to us to the end. So you see, Calvin isn't describing some kind of feeling, is he? He's describing this fear of God as a total commitment to live all of life in light of divine reality. This is the holy fear that magnifies him because it begins to make every decision of life in reference to God. Hmm. And so we have a great reason to fear the Lord. Why? Because it says God's mercy is reserved for those who fear him. What is the connection of God's fear and his mercy? Well, the more you are impressed by God's presence, the more you will understand the depths of the mercy he's shown you in Jesus Christ. You know you will stand before God someday, but instead of being consumed as a sinner, you'll be cherished as a son. This is the gospel promise of forgiveness, of mercy, and it is the only thing that can change how you feel about standing before God. So the greater you fear God, the greater you realize your own sin, and you cannot stand before God. But then, you know the greatest gift of God's mercy, and that you will be able to live in his presence, not appear before him, live in his presence forevermore. And God extends this mercy to all who fear him. This is exactly the principle Luke shows us in the Nativity. Who gets God's presence in the Nativity? Who does God send angels to? Is it the great people of the world? Is it the wealthy? Is it the religious leaders? Is it the Caesar? No, it's those who fear God. King Herod never got to gaze on the Son of God, but shepherds do. And it says they were filled with great fear at the angels. So 
We can magnify God by singing with joy, by fearing Him. And now Mary tells us why. First, she sings about the strength of God's arm. Do you think God's arm is strong enough for you today? Or does the state of our country or your family or the world make you feel like God's grip might be slipping? Mary tells us what is happening in society and your life is not subject to random chance or karma or some grand conspiracy. It is the product of God's unerring justice. God is executing his judgments on the earth. Now, if we lived in the world as God made it, it indeed would have been a paradise, but it's not the world we live in. The creator we fear has a mighty arm, and so he has the right to judge the nations. God does not need help in saving the humble or judging the proud. God is setting up rulers, scattering them like they're pieces on a game board. And for people who live on that game board, like us, this can look like chaos. It's no surprise Mary highlights God's opposition to the proud. Because the proud, instead of magnifying God, what do they do? They magnify their own names. It's often not easy to see God's hand in chaos, in calamity. But Mary says God has a good purpose. But of course, Mary's song isn't focused on judgment, is it? It's focused on her loving God who's working. It may be invisible to the world, but God's Redeemer has come. He's come without fanfare, and he's hidden in the womb of Mary. God's mercy and his judgments come together. Right? The strong arm that drowned Pharaoh saved the Israelites. That's God's mercy and his judgment. God has a good purpose. Now, God does not enjoy just turning the world upside down, but if he's going to feed the hungry, if he's going to exalt the humble, it's going to involve turning the world upside down. God will display his mighty arm. He will make the first last and the last first. All of these involve God's judgment and his mercy coming simultaneously. And so one reason we magnify God is by trusting him that no matter the circumstance I find myself in today, God is working good for me. God has a loving purpose. But the final reason, the most important reason Mary sings is the crescendo of her song. The grand finale of why she would praise God. It's the birth of Jesus. She praises him most of all because of how he is working in Jesus and keeping all of his promises. He has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Our praise is built on the foundation of God's promises. We can't have lasting joy based on nostalgia, based on some generic belief, well, God is good. Everyone, everyone you know talks abstractly about God being good or believing God will probably have something special for me if I hold on in the future. Or another cliche, like every cloud has a silver lining. Well, the answer is truly some clouds don't. And so you need something better than positive thinking or sentimentality. You need the promises of God, the sure promises of God, because it means you know exactly what you can trust him for. You don't have to guess what God will do for you. And all of these promises lead us to sing. 
And all of these promises find their yes in Jesus. The grace Mary sings about was promised more than a thousand years beforehand. But it belonged to Mary. It belongs to God's people in all nations today. And this is the foundation of our praise. God makes promises, and when he keeps them, we sing. Mary rejoices God is visiting his people again, and he is fulfilling everything he said to Abraham, everything he said to the prophets. God did not forget the promises. What an important thing to remember. God did not forget the promise to bless all the nations of the earth through the offspring of Abraham, even though a thousand years had passed. God did not forget his promise to David that he would never lack a son on the throne even though Israel had been conquered and destroyed by pagan nations. Jesus Christ is the final chapter of this story. The story God began in Genesis of how God will deliver his people. Now, there's a danger when we read poetry this closely, when we pull it apart. We can see all the notes on the page and miss the melody. And we will actually just miss the beauty of music if we focus on all the technical details. So let me leave you with the melody of the song. Jesus is coming. Mary sings because Jesus is coming. She rejoices in her spirit because Jesus is coming. She fears God because Jesus is coming. God is coming close. God has been telling one grand story about Jesus this whole time. Mary is singing this magnum opus because Jesus is coming. God inspired this song to commemorate the birth of Jesus. Jesus Christ, born of Mary, Son of God, is the Savior we rejoice in and the God we fear. Now, this God dwelling of God with us did not begin with a royal decree or an imperial palace, but it began unforeseen in the womb of a virgin, of a singing virgin. The Son of God did not come for the righteous, did he? But he came to seek and to save that which is lost. God did not come as Jesus Christ to go to the nobles, but to sinners. The might of God's arm was not shown in a military victory or in ruling all the empires of this world. No, in fact, the religious leaders of that day rejected Jesus because of this. They conspired with the rulers of this world to put him to death. And this was the great reversal of the proud and the humble. The proud men that day killed the Son of God. The Son of God humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. And like his birth, when did God work most powerfully? When it was least visible to us. This was no defeat. This was the climax of all the promises ever made. And it is given to everyone who's a son of Abraham, those who believe the promises. The righteous one has died in the place of the unrighteous so that they could sing a new song. Jesus offers you abundant mercy if you will receive him as Savior, and if you will fear him as Lord. So let's glorify God. Does your soul magnify the Lord? Can you with the angels sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he's pleased? Pray with me. Lord God, we are blessed to live on this side of Christ. I pray that today you will show us how we can each magnify Jesus. Teach us how to rejoice in you, in song, and in all our lives. And teach us how to show you fear. Thank you, God, 
for your many blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.